Hi, everyone. This is Pivot from New York Magazine and the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Kara Swisher. And I'm Leslie Stahl. <laughs> you wish you were Leslie Stahl. I do wish I was Leslie Stahl. Do you want me to introduce you to Leslie Stahl? You know, I have a uh, story about Leslie Stahl. Okay, Mark go ahead. Benioff invited me to this a celebration of Time's Man of the Year, and that's oh, when I realized he had purchased Time magazine. Uh-huh. And it was Andrew Ross Sorkin, Leslie Stahl, all these kind of, I don't know, icons of journalism and me. And I literally, I got there and I looked around and then they had one of those Placido Domingo, or I forget who, the, the blind, who's the blind singer? Who's the one who's got an amazing, oh, they all have amazing voices. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, okay. All and right. his son, who also has an amazing voice. Uh-huh. And I'm sitting around this table in a midtown thing, and I'm like, I, for a moment, I literally thought, okay, there's a, yeah. there's an Australian rules football player named Scott Galloway. And for a moment, I looked around and I thought, did they mean to invite the rugby player? Oh. Because I could not figure out how I ended up in this room. But anyways, Leslie Stahl was there, and she seemed very lovely and very smart. She used to come to the Code Conference quite a bit. She she got a big interest in tech for a while. Um, She was great during that, by the way. I hope everybody saw that, because that was quite a a back and forth that she had. She was trying her level best to deal with baby Huey, but it was was crazy. I was like, can you stop talking about your victimization? Did you watch the whole thing? I'm curious. uh, I did. Because they did all four of them. How would you you stack rank or or what were your impressions of all four of them? I thought Pence was like, you know, the the weird robotic penis that he is. I don't know how else to explain it. Um, you got to admit, though, I mean, you're uh, the, one of the things fine. I like about you is that no. I, no. I, you're able to take, you are able to separate the person from the ideology. As mm-hmm. a politician, he is very good. He is in the old style, in the way that, like, he kind says no. Uh, no, I don't think Reagan. Reagan was charismatic and delightful. Whether, yeah. like, I can't, yep. stuff on his aides, I want to literally just, it's horrible how yep. we behave, but he is a charismatic and and and, and really um, attractive candidate. Pence has mm-hmm. leaves no emotion. You don't go, oh, that guy. I love that guy. He 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 he's just has no. You have no affect to him except that he's a suck up now. That's that that's. Yeah, but look impression. at the hand he's been dealt. Yeah. I mean, well, but he except gets he's on there yes. and he manages to kind of pivot away, not answer the question, but try to yeah. answer it. He is he is. I mean, I don't. I forget the spokesperson's name. I forget her name. Can't be. Oh, Kaylee. Yeah, I can't. I think she's fantastic. I think she's very talented. Even though she makes me want to cringe. Oh, she did a little sharp thing at Leslie. Did you say the president gave you enough time? I've had that happen to me with so many PR people. You know, so and so gave you enough time. So Pence. Okay, so Pence. I interrupted you. What did you think of Biden? What did you think Uh, of Biden? Was fine. Was very like Uncle Joe and sharper than sharper yeah. than usual. Yeah. Uh, I think he's fine. I think he's fine. He's been in politics forever. He's a, he's like a comfortable sweater. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? Like he's fine. And he, he was actually, was yeah. he seems more lively than ever and more engaged. So that's great. Um, and if, he is, he's in, he's invigorated, which is good. And Senator, um, Senator Harris? I think she's, sh- I think she's sharp as a tack. I think she will be subject to, um, hatefulness because yep. she's a, a woman of color and she's smart and she she's in your face yeah uh sometimes she, she uh she goes a little light when she shouldn't because she's so she tries to play down how incredibly sharp and intelligent she is sometimes i thought senator harris in the I 60 minutes interview i actually thought mm-hmm. she came across as the least yeah. credible quite frankly I thought she came across as, gosh, I'm so excited to be on the ticket. And she was laughing yeah. too much. She seemed nervous yeah, to me. Yeah, she has that tick. She has a tick of laughing. I think she'll, I think she'll, once she gets more comfortable, she's been in public like a lot of time, but not yeah. at this level. And so even though a senator from California is a big deal, I think um, she's moved through the system through through through, a tur- through the city um, lawyer in San Francisco, the attorney, uh, to the attorney general, oh, to this, yeah. to that. And so I think she'll be more comfortable when she's well she's it's she's new she's early yes. she needs some yeah. some marinating you know kind of yeah. she's not used to 60 minutes interviews on the as the vp so there's a lot of appealing things about her i think Agreed. people will there's going to be a, a great turn story. for her there's going to be a turn for her she's either yeah. going to be uh with all women politicians it's either i really like her or you get into the elizabeth warren hillary clinton zone where people have to like dislike you for no good reason other than you're a sharp uh, and smart woman um, but we'll see. We'll see. I thought Trump was the worst. He seemed like a big giant baby and wouldn't talk about policy. The man is like impossible to talk about policy. And, and I think he of all of them is the most charismatic. So that's, he sort of wastes his time on his weird little petty grievances. Mm-hmm. Um, when he has a lot of political gifts that he doesn't avail himself to. He's yeah. like so, 
um, I was just saying, I just interviewed Sarah Cooper, who does these impressions of him. And she's, she thinks he's not funny because he's, he doesn't, he, he's inadvertently funny, but he doesn't, he's unaware of his ridiculousness in mm-hmm. the way most comics are. Anyway, um, I thought he looked terrible. I don't know if it matters, but he looked as usual. It's the same stuff we all know, this kind of stuff. There was, um, a, there was a brutal takedown uh, that was contrasting his, his kind of spray tan face and his hands. Yeah. They're just talking about how this is kind of really uh, uh, the kind of illusion in the chasm between what is the, how the ca- country is actually doing and who he really is. Yeah. It's all illusion. Uh, it was, it was, it was brutal. I don't usually like talking about people's looks, but in Agreed. his case, that those that spray tan is about a lot of things. Yeah, I think you it's invite you invite that kind of scrutiny when you. Well, it's about it's it's, it's metaphorical in a way that's significant and very well, clear. Have, like I'm sorry, like, I'm the, sorry like there's you. a story. Let me just yep. um, there's yep. a story today in the, I think at the Washington Post about what happened in with Carrier the air conditioning, and you know this guy was like you know all he does is press releases and then he leaves and nothing ever happens. It shows right. how this town has lost all these jobs. So it's all press release. It's all spray tan. It's all, it's all Yeah, it's all. Which is like, yeah. it's not uncommon, but it's taken to a ridiculous extreme in this administration. Speaking of which, I'd love to know what you think about TikTok. Um, you know, they that was all noise, noise, noise. And now uh, it's, you know, it's working its way through through uh, where it's going. It's got till mid-November before anything really has to happen. And there's all kinds of lawsuits uh, waiting, so it may even be delayed past that. But how do you think Biden is going to deal with this soap opera if he's elected? And I think Trump still be, has time in office to deal with it, obviously. I think he recognizes he has no domain expertise here, and I'm not even sure um, the vice president does, and he'll mm-hmm. do what... I think there's going to be a lot of quote-unquote bipartisan commissions coming out coming out of his inauguration if he wins. And that mm-hmm. is, they'll look at it yeah. and they'll decide, all right, if we're going to ban TikTok, which might make sense, it needs to be under the under the auspices of a ban against Chinese internet companies in response to their yes, banning systemic, all American companies. The systemic thing. Yeah, it needs to be policy. One-offs. It can't yep. be it can't be governing by a hundred and a hundred and forty characters. But again, what this looks like is, and we I, I think we were pretty cogent here. We said this is nothing but a distraction, an attempt yep. to look tough. It's not sustainable. It's not legally viable. And just the amount of time that Microsoft and what looks like Oracle wasted on this, yep. it weakens us. It weakens us. One of the one of the things it's always struck me. I have a lot of uh, friends who came here who are who are immigrants who've been extraordinarily successful in the alternative investments mm-hmm. world. They're hedge fund managers, and the thing that they always impressed on me that I I think I've taken for granted as Americans as an American is that they said one of the things they just love about it here. Uh, and they, from a lifestyle standpoint, from a family standpoint, mm-hmm. the draw to go back to El Salvador or Spain or wherever they're from is really draw strong. But they said the rule of law is just so powerful here that if, you know, the notion in a lot of these countries, you can be hugely successful. And there's always a non-zero probability that a government or a populist movement is going to or a bad actor could take everything away. Yep. And that the rule of law here and the protection and respect for private property is a is a real draw for people around the world. And mm-hmm. it, we're demonstrating it now by saying, okay, maybe TikTok shouldn't be here. Maybe it is a threat. But if we don't have laws we can consistently exactly. apply to this, we're, we're not going to do it. And These that one-offs is a, are really dangerous. That's right. The same thing with Carrier, the same thing with all these things. You cannot make policy by having like, let's get one company to do one thing. It has to be a systemic policy. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm the same way on this internet stuff. I'm like, we need, a, cannot have one-off lawsuits. We have to have a systemic look. I, I welcome the bipartisan commission. Yeah. Um, speaking of which, speaking of uh, things that have to be bipartisan, at least, yep. let's talk about the big stories. Facebook is prepping for post-election unrest using the same tools for what it calls, quote, at-risk countries. We're now an at-risk country. The emergency measures would slow the spread of viral content and lower the bar for suppressing inflammatory posts. These measures have been used before in Sri Lanka and Myanmar. That's where we are right now. After the UN accused Facebook of fueling the Rohingya uh, genocide. Whoa. Like, I'm I'm glad they're doing this, but boy, they caused it. They're like trying to put out a fire they caused. Um, and you saw some videos this weekend of... of Trump pro-Trump people and anti-Trump people fighting in ways that were their guns and things like that. There's all kinds of stuff. So, you know, this leaping into the physical is very that you know the tinder is there. So, what do you what do you think about this? Well, I th- I think it's 11 a.m. 
uh, the Sunday after the rager you had as a, a senior in high school, and mm-hmm. there's blow everywhere and a donkey and, uh, and, and <laughs> the, the dog. The donkey get in there. Your, your, your dog him. has been lit on fire, uh, uh-huh. and everything is, everything is literally destroyed. And your parents sent you a text saying they decided to come home early, and you are scrambling to clean up the mess. Right. And what okay. has gone on here? Because they recognize the, the parents, uh, the parents may be on their way home. Ten, Biden Harris up by 10 points. Right. And, and this election. I mean, here's so this kind of goes into the New York, the New York Ad Observatory has been collecting publicly available data on the platform showing what political this ads is are Stanford running. Now, this, no, is, this is NYU. Okay. NYU yeah. Ad, I know uh, they're in a Ad fight with them. They're in a fight and with Facebook them. And Facebook has said this violates our terms of service and we're going to take further action if you don't stop doing it. Yeah, explain that at NYU people are such activists over there. Well, it's anyway. actually a PhD student at Tandon and it's pretty it's pretty benign. It's okay, this is mm-hmm. the ads they're running in Pennsylvania. This is who's paying for the ads. And Facebook has said, No, 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 it violates our terms of service yeah. and we're going to shut you down. And this is the reality is any, any data you can scrape from a publicly a public platform is almost always uh, kind of a free reign for academics. Mm-hmm. And not only that, academics oftentimes have access to data. Companies are provi- provide academics with data that the public is, doesn't have access to. So this is just mm-hmm. not unusual at all. It's nonsense. And what, what it says doing. is that Facebook recognizes, Facebook recognizes that this academic is probably going to find out that, yeah, people were leveraging our data and our tools to suppress the vote. Or that people were leveraging our tools and our technology to spread misinformation. And we'd rather that be as opaque as possible and to roll out as slowly as possible. So this Mm -hmm. is... Yeah, anyways, it is it is Sunday morning at 11. They are freaked out. The parents might be coming home because the parents are up by 10 points. And now in an election, if we find out, if we find out, and we're going to, that mm-hmm. they fucked with what is the most important or seminal moments in a free society for the second time in a row. Yeah. And maybe they didn't promote it. Maybe it wasn't their intention. Maybe they would have rather it didn't Pitch happen. time. But they traded off security for letting people do it, or they traded off revenues for allowing it to happen. There's going to be hell to pay. When dad and mom get home, it is going to be ugly. And you know what? Except, you know, except if it leads to Trump's, because Trump will do nothing with this. Co- this company is his, 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 his yeah, aid. That's my point. They're hoping. I, I, I genuinely believe that a lot of senior executives who worry about, not only worry about, uh, um, their share price, but I think start are starting to probably believe, wow, I personally could probably yep. get in a lot of hot water here, are really hoping for a Trump re-election. I think Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg have more riding on Trump's re-election than almost anyone oh, other than maybe Putin and, you know, uh, you know, Borat or Rachel we'll Maddow. See. They, we'll see. Um, so, yeah, I know a lot of people will do, uh, well, I think people are exhausted by this, but why wait until after the election to create these measures? Well, that, that's exactly the right question, Kara. Mm-hmm. Well, let me, why aren't these measures a part of their policy? Mm-hmm. Why are these yeah. even measures? Why isn't this just policy? They're talking yeah. about reducing the virality of inflammatory content. Well, that sounds like mm-hmm. a reasonable policy for any media yeah. company, period, not pre, post, or election. Why is it something we're only contemplating so Should there be a mute button for someone like if it's Trump starts to put out stuff that's just inaccurate? So this gets into this gets into the whole notion yeah. of censorship. And in my viewpoint, yes, in my view, in my view, and uh, let me be clear, I, I think they're a media company. I think media companies mm-hmm. have biases. I think media companies are allowed to edit people. Their terms of service, if they had any, uh, if they had any reverence or allegiance or fidelity to their terms of servants, both platforms would have would have shut his account off or down right. or kicked it off, and they didn't right. because right. he alone is probably generating several billion ads served. The mm-hmm. conversation he, he inspires, the catalog, the the rage, the dialogue, the clicks, the Chobani and Nissan ads is just worth a ton of money to them. Yep. What do you think? Well, they bet. I think they are culpable here if they don't do the right thing. And I don't know what I would do. I think they've backed themselves in a corner where they have to censor now or they, or if they don't, there's damage. It's just they've put themselves into the worst. They have not gotten people used to the idea of who they are and that they are a private company that can, can do these things. And so everybody now thinks it's the, it's the public, uh, square. And they've allowed that to happen. They've put no strictures in place. They haven't made clear that this is their platform and this is how people are going to behave on it. And now 
they're paying the price and they will pay the price. Is if there is a this is a close election and Trump starts to mess with it, I don't wouldn't want to be that person to make that decision. But they're going to have to. But you used you used a keyword. I, I don't know what I would do. You used the know. word censoring, and I would argue that I don't think it's censoring. That's right. I think that's what it's that's got right. that in the mind. It's I don't think it's censoring. I'm, it's it's stopping someone from lying. That's, that's in a right. Very when, when Leslie Stahl in her sixty minutes yeah. interview says she stopped him. This no. is sixty minutes. We can't right. put statements on the air that we can't verify. And well, I know we won't be able to verify that. And when more when Facebook the, shuts yeah. down content, we can't verify. It's not censoring. Yeah. It's taking responsibility for being a media company where two thirds well, of America the get their information. Is how they get out of it. But one of the things that I thought that Leslie saw beyond the we can't verify it thing, I think when she said when he said they had tried to steal the election, she said no. And he said, they tried. You go look at the papers. Oh, yeah. go, go, go get the papers. Get the, I was like, what papers? Like, I, I, I would have been yeah, like, where, what where, friggin' papers are you talking about? Yeah, you know, and she goes, no. And he said, and then he kept saying again, he, she goes, no, that is inaccurate. Right. Like, sh- that is how you do Like, that is all, no one's going Leslie Stahl censored him. He's just saying, no, that is inaccurate. That's right. You just, it came out of your mouth, but guess what? It's a lie. So it's, it's difficult. Anyway, we're going to, speaking of damage, uh, let's go on a quick break and to talk about the issues with the Robinhood app, which yep. is something that Scott has talked quite a lot about. And we have a friend of Pivot, Katie Turr, to help us lead us through next week's election. Welcome back. Robinhood users are saying their accounts are being hacked and looted. They have no way to report the thefts. Bloomberg reported that users have been targeted by cyber criminals without any way to hold the Robinhood app accountable or track their funds, you know, like do their job. These users have to contact the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority with limited success. Robinhood said they've doubled their customer service team this year, which they had talked about before with me and other people, but clearly does not help users from being looted. Oh, Scott. Tell me. Well, first off, notice how they said doubled their customer service team, but they didn't put any numbers on it. <laughs> yeah, They've gone right. from four yeah. to eight people. So, well, look. No, it's the hundreds. I do know that, look, but go ahead. Okay. So, the social dilemma kind of really depicts this really well, and that is when the product is free, you are the product. And what we have uh, in our you know, surveillance capitalism society is incrementally they say, we'll give you something for free, and we'll start taking data from you. And even if you don't provide us with permission, we'll start monetizing that data. You're the cow. You're not the customer. You're the product. And we're going to milk the shit out of you and find people who are willing to pay more and more for this this milk, which is a data set, which we continually enhance. And the order flow that Robinhood gets from its quote-unquote product, that's you, the consumer at Robinhood, gets... Mm -hmm. A greater it gets more money. They're able to sell that that order flow for more money than any other brokerage. Why? It's either that a they're able the people who take that order flow can either create a greater spread and sell Robinhood traders stocks at a worse price, or or that's the dumb money and traders like to know what the dumb money is doing so they can take the other side of that trade. But be clear, you are the product, not the customer. And then right. and right. then they're like, we don't want anything to get in the way of this blitz scale, including, including getting to a point, and this happens several times, and you sent me the articles on this, mm-hmm. you get an alert on Robinhood. This happened. Mm-hmm. Your Moderna stock has been sold, a trade confirmation. It's been sold. And you're like, wait, I didn't sell it. And mm-hmm. then it says, you get another alert saying, we are about to transfer the funds, the proceeds of your modern, Moderna sale out of your account. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, someone has hacked. My right. account is stealing from me and is about to transfer it out. And then you're like, okay, I caught them. You try and call Robinhood, but they don't mm-hmm. have a 800 number. They don't have a customer service number. Why? Yeah. That would get in the way of scaling. Yeah. Any bank, and this they person, immediately shut it. A credit card company, you get an alert before something happens. Everybody. And they, they, these people start calling desperately. Anyone emailing them on LinkedIn. Plan, and you know what they get? It. They get an email back saying, this is a serious issue. Someone will be back to you within a few weeks. And some of yeah. these people literally lost or were worried they were going to lose their life savings. I have traded. So, Scott, shouldn't that be the you know the very bottom amount of work that Robinhood should do for its customers? When you're dealing with people's livelihoods, when you're dealing with money, the notion I've traded on 
on uh, Schwab, Goldman's trading platform, Northern Trust, TD Ameritrade. Mm-hmm. The idea that I would register and notice that funds had been, uh, there, that there was a legal activity in my account and funds were about to be stolen out of my account. The idea that I wouldn't be able to immediately get somebody on the phone and that they would immediately take action is absolutely unheard of. It is. All Robinhood users, you should know, you're the product. You're not the customer. And and then the language that Robinhood put out was very telling. They said a limited number of our accounts where the passwords were stolen because the passwords were hacked outside. And they said this wasn't a breach. In other words, if Walmart is broken into and something bad, it's not our fault if the key used to get into the store was copied somewhere else. They are taking a page out of Facebook's playbook. Slow roll, deny, obfuscation, don't take responsibility. You're not the consumer, you're the product. And quite frankly, we're going to start parsing you out and selling you to other people. Robin Hood's focus on blitz scaling, their inability or their willingness to totally um, abuse their abuse their 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 product, who right now is their consumer set, has reached a new high. And here's the question we all face and regulators in the SEC face, and that is, if we could what go back do? in time before Facebook really started levying a ton of damage on the Commonwealth, would we stop them? Well, guess what we can, because Robin Hood and their CEOs, they're a fucking menace. And we have the opportunity, <laughs> oh we have the opportunity to shut that menace. shit down early before early. it becomes out of control. This is the opportunity to move in yeah. now. Well, what's good here, what's good here, and we're going to get to Katie Kerr in a second, is that there, this is an area that, that there is much more um, attention paid because it's finance, because it's people's bank accounts. So I think you will see some action by the SEC and other organizations. I do. I do think. With Facebook, you don't know who is in charge of this. And of course, the FTC punted on these things. Um, but, but, but I feel like you have a, you have a, a point of view on this, Scott. So we'll see where well, it this goes. This is a test for the SEC. Is the SEC exist to protect management or to protect investors? This is a test okay. for them. All right. It's a test. It's a test. And they have failed so far, according to Scott Galloway. Speaking of tests, we have an election coming up. We uh, do. And we have Katie Turr. We have Katie Turr, MSNBC anchor, NBC News correspondent, and New York Times bestselling author. Yep. Katie, welcome to Pivot. Scott is hey. extraordinarily excited uh, just because well, you're so my famous. First question, what... My first question, my first question, who does not love Katie Tour? Katie, okay. who does not love Katie Tour? Oh, right. gosh. Oh, my right. son doesn't love me as much as he loves his dad right now. Oh, I am, well, I am the second favorite person in the household. All so right. this is well, key. Before I know before before <laughs> Kara starts her whole substantive interview thing, Katie, you literally play. But just so you know, all my questions are just an excuse for me to talk about me. So let's get going. So Katie Tour <laughs> plays the same role in my life as Goodfellas, the 1990 crime drama. Whenever oh, wow. I am I am browsing on live TV, which I still do because I'm 108. If I see Goodfellas or Katie Tour, I stop and I just watch. You are so <laughs> substantive know. and you bring so much humanity <laughs> to important stories. Oh, Katie Tour and God. Goodfellas. All right. Now I'm going to move ever on. Ever since I can remember, I've always wanted to be a gangster. There you, go. Okay. you are well, a gangster. You, Scott. you are a gangster. All right. So That's my favorite line Gangster, Joe Pesci, listen, listen to me. Uh, let's talk about the, the, the key differences that you see between the weeks leading up to 2016 election and 2020 election. I'm sorry I'm not effusively complimenting you, but I think you're an excellent <laughs> reporter. So talk to me about how you look at it because you covered, you know, you've covered both uh, elections. So this is, it's diametrically um, different than 2016. Donald Trump isn't running as an outsider any longer, although he's trying to. Yeah. Um, he is a, an incumbent. He's had four years behind him. He's got a record to run on. And there are those in his orbit who say he should run on the specifics of his record that they like. But then there are a lot of people who have been watching him for four years and, you know, may have thought that he would have um, pivoted. Mm-hmm. to be a more presidential uh, leader once he got into the White House and realized very quickly that that didn't happen. And might, may, might be looking at the last four years and thinking, I don't really like him so much. There are others who say, hey, listen, the coronavirus has been a complete and utter disaster. And I'm really tired of 
you know, living inside my basement or like you or are really right now. tired of going to the market yeah. and having to fight with people about wearing masks when I think they should wear them and the president should show some leadership on this or people who look outside and say, oh my God, look at all this racial unrest. This is, this is a problem that we need to address, not just pretend it doesn't exist or people who want to have Thanksgiving dinner mm-hmm. with their family without somebody storming out because of politics. Or so there's COVID. a lot going on right <laughs> now that he wasn't dealing with in 2016. I'm not saying he's going to lose, but I am saying it does dramatically change the landscape. How, how is covering it different? Obviously, there's the COVID issues, but what is what is the what is the tonality? Because before it was sort of this insurgent campaign, there was a little more humor around it, despite all the ugliness that he brought to bear. Um, there was more, you know, what can, what do we have to lose with this guy? It's really difficult to cover him because when he opens his mouth the majority of what he says isn't true. Mm-hmm. And you can't spend all of your time picking through it because you an hour would go by and you wouldn't have covered anything. So you have to, as a journalist, pick and choose what you are going to focus on. And um, covering the lead up to this election, obviously, is so much different because I'm not out on the road as I normally would have which been. Which you were, yeah. Which I was, and I had a real sense of where the voters' heads were at. Um, now it's you've got to focus on what is the biggest issue at hand, which is the coronavirus, and choosing to cover that over um, whatever Donald Trump may have said at a gaggle or whatever he may have tweeted. I so infrequently talk about his tweets now because most of the time, the vast majority of time, they just don't matter. Whereas in 2016, because he was so unpredictable, we felt like we were following the bouncing ball a lot. Right now, you, you ignore the ball and you focus on uh, the target, which is right now the coronavirus. Scott? Yeah, just a couple of things seem different. I'm curious what your take is if they're really having an impact. The first is it just seems like the president and the vice president are at this point super spreaders. And they haven't. we haven't seen that level of super spread from either – uh, Biden or Harris. I'm curious if you think when you're out there talking to people, if they see the, the kind of the different approach uh, or the different results as leadership or symptom of incompetence. Like, they're, the campaign's you know, registry or, I don't know, interaction with coronavirus, how has that impacted voters' sense of what is going on between the two campaigns? Well, I mean, it depends on who you're talking right. to, right? frankly, because if you're talking to the majority of people here in New York, um, their sense is that Donald Trump is a, is a public health danger yeah. from the way that he's behaving, you know, by holding these rallies where there's no social distancing and no masks, by himself not modeling the behavior that his own health experts um, and officials are advocating by making fun of Joe Biden all of these things by by having an outbreak at the White House, by having a second outbreak at the White House and not, you know, going to the hospital and, and getting treated and coming out and not taking it seriously. That was, you know, that was the worst fear for a lot of people yeah. was that he was going to go in, be fine, come out and say it's not mm-hmm. a big deal and give give motivation and give a talking point Which he's to done. people who don't want to take it seriously. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I talked to others uh, who are um, more in Donald Trump's camp and they'll say, well, I wish he took it more seriously, but they'll have excuses Mm -hmm. for it. Mm -hmm. Like like, there's nothing he could have done um, better than this. It was a virus that was out of control from the start. This was their new thing, correct? That's their new, there's nothing anybody could have done. There's nothing anybody could have done. He saved hundreds of thousands of lives. You can't fault him for this. They had a plan and they executed it. I see. So when you think about uh, where we are right now, we're a week away. Uh, How are you preparing in the days up to the election? And how are you thinking of the days after as as someone who has a show and you're obviously going to have to be, you were talking about the idea of not following the bouncing ball. There's going to be balls everywhere here and it's going to be all over the place. So how are you preparing you know, as you're watching early voting and the early takeaways, that's already started. Nobody knows, but they doesn't stop them from reporting on it. Um, so talk about how you think about how media should do it and, and, and then talk about how social media platforms could, should do it because I think cable and they sort of work in tandem together yeah. in, in a weird way. So I just got a text message from my producer saying that I'm locked in our A1 lead. So I got to get out of it. I just did. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I don't even know what you so just said are, there, but it sounded I, very impressive. Yeah, but it was cool. It sounded very yeah, it's, impressive. It's the open of the show. It's the first <laughs> wow. read of the show. Um, 
and we we spent a lot of time on the first read because that is the framing for mm-hmm. the entire day's coverage. Sure. And what what I have been doing and what we have been doing specifically in the last few weeks is we have been framing it um, as as two stories um, coming to a head, which is that we are coming down to the wire on election day. People are voting in numbers that we have not seen before. Millions of people deciding it is too risky to take a risk. I'm going to mail my ballot in early. I am going to show up in person while at the same time, hundreds, if not, you know, more than a thousand Americans are dying every single day. There mm-hmm. are new hot spots popping up every single day. Mm-hmm. Hospitals again are running out of ICU beds. You've got the crisis of the coronavirus, which is whipping itself up again, and you have the election. And those two things are intertwined. You can't separate them. So we focus on those in the beginning and we try to give you a sense of where the race and, and the country stands. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a how you don't follow the bouncing ball. And and oftentimes the bouncing ball stories kind of fit into the larger story of both Mm -hmm. the election and the coronavirus. Uh, Donald Trump's going after mail-in ballots because he says it's fraud. Well, there are mail-in ballots because of the Mm -hmm. pandemic and people don't Mm -hmm. necessarily feel safe in going and voting. On the question of social media, social media is so as you know, and when we talk about this on my show, it's, it's difficult. I think that it has, um, made the ability to get the truth out almost impossible mm-hmm. in, in some scenarios. I mean, you the, the ability for people to be misinformed or disinformed mm-hmm. on social media, it's not just social media, it's some cable news yes. outlets, right. um, is profound. And I, 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 I am always overcome and scared when I talk to people who are spouting off um, yes. conspiracy theories or just wildly incorrect information that has no basis in reality. So you talked to my mother this yeah. morning. Then. <laughs> well, I come across these people a, a lot. I mean, you can find them in New York. You can find them outside of Trump rallies in Pennsylvania. You can talk to them online. I get emails from people saying these things. But I mean, the majority of it is coming from the right. Mm-hmm. But there is a problem coming from the left as well, where I will get friends who will text me something they saw on Twitter or Facebook and say, Mm -hmm. what about this? And I'll say, oh, my God, where are you getting that from? And it's like just some unknown website. Well, I heard it and I, you know, it feels right to me. And you say, well, okay, but you can't, you can't. Trust so it, what you do you gotta, do as a broadcaster, as a reporter? What is your responsibility, especially if this gets very close and ugly? How are you thinking about that? I, I think you have to be very clear with what's at stake, but also with um, uh, the expectations. Mm-hmm. We might not have a winner on election night. We probably won't have a winner on election night. We might have one in the days after, but maybe not. It might be weeks after. Prepare yourself. Uh, for there to be a delay and also know that there are going to be people out there, nefarious actors who are going to try and manipulate mm-hmm. your opinion about what is happening and arm yourself with accurate information. How do you find accurate information? Well, if you see something online and it, it piques your interest, Google it. Try to find it backed up at the New York Times or the Washington Post or USA Today, or or NBC News, or CNN, or CBS, whatever. Find another more liable news source that backs up the the information you just read. And if you can't find it, I don't trust it. Push mm-hmm. it away and wait until that that gets confirmed somewhere else. That's a, that's a, a level of media literacy that not many people have. They, they don't. don't really understand. I have a question about, like about early voting. You would think that we would actually have more insight into what's going to happen here than any previous election because what we're coming up on about 50 million people have already voted. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, more so, than that. And I get the sense that we have been the progressives on the left. We were hit so hard by this car in 2016 that we don't want to say out loud anything positive. We don't want to jinx any, any of it. But what, if anything, have you seen or do you take away or what thesis do you have uh, w- around early voting? Like, what are the signals telling you? 60 million, 60 just million. so you know, it just hit 60 million. 60 million. So, so uh, the early vote is uh, indicative of enthusiasm. And I think it's indicative of how many people 
felt um, surprised and maybe waylaid by the 2016 election. So I think that what you're seeing is a lot of enthusiasm from people who do not like Donald Trump, want to see him out of office, don't want to take a risk on it, and are getting out there very early. Mm -hmm. What I think is most interesting are the number of people who voted this time that did not vote in 2016. Mm -hmm. That's going to be what sways this election. It's not going to be Donald Trump taking some Democrats or Joe Biden taking some Republicans. It's going to be the millions of people who didn't show up. There were 4.4 million Obama 2012 voters who didn't show up in 2016. Mm-hmm. 4.4 million. It's a lot of people. If just a handful of those in a couple of key spaces, key counties, show up and vote and vote young for Joe Biden. Also. They're young people, they're African American men, mm-hmm. um and people who were just didn't didn't think that their vote mattered, assumed Hillary Clinton was gonna win. Um, if they show up, then the election is going to be completely different. Yeah. So let me ask uh, just two, uh, two more questions, and maybe Scott has one more. Is when you're when you're broadcasting like this, and you you were on the road, you were an a, you were a reporter for the last election. What is ha, when you think about you broadcasting? You're in a basement. You're broadcasting in a basement. How do you think about your job differently now, th- this election versus last election? Because you also you have to now have a Twitter, uh, you know status and what you're doing here. Talk about sort of that, the difference of what you were doing, because you wrote a whole book on on being on the campaign trail. So it's been really humbling being in the basement and not being out there. So I have come to focus on and rely on the reporting of my colleagues who are Mm -hmm. out there talking to people every day and know that they probably have a better pulse on anything than I certainly do sitting here or that, that many of the talking heads that we have who are experts and very intelligent than they do coming on um, because a lot of their, you know, political education and knowledge spans decades back and it might not be necessarily um, yeah. relevant today. Yeah, I want you to get rid of all the pundits. I just want you to have reporters, honestly. <laughs> I love the reporters and we yeah. have people in the field and we have, uh, you know, this County to County project that, that meet the press launch that we have a couple reporters doing, including um, a girl named Dasha Burns. And she's going to these counties and she's talking to voters in these swing, swing places mm-hmm. that are, either not changing their mind or changing their mind. You know, they're they're the people who will potentially make the difference in this election. So for me, it's, it's relying on that information. It's calling old uh, contacts that from 2016 and getting a sense of where they are. Um, But it's also knowing that the, the smartest thing that I can say right now is, I don't know. That's unusual from a reporter. Yeah, I'm Scott? more curious or curious about your view on your industry. You're a rigorous journalist. You're on, you're ascending. Your career is ascending. And so you're a pilot on a 747. You have the premier seat in what you do. But you're in the cable bundle, which is like Pan Am Airlines in the 70s. It just, <laughs> it, just it, it doesn't look good long term. And I'm curious what you think is going to happen. So far, politics are largely, politics and sports are still kind of the last firewalls of ad-supported media. As you think about your own career and in the industry, do you think over time I need to get to subscription media? Do you think that, okay, I need to develop different channels of communication and, and develop my own direct channels? Like, how are you, how do you view the industry and the kind of the ice cube that is the cable industry right now and think about your own career management? Yeah. So I think that's a, a really important question. It's also a tough one. I think that the media industry is um, facing some some giant obstacles. The biggest one that's going to cross any platform that you might live on is trust um, Mm -hmm. confidence. And Mm -hmm. we've had that uh, plummet now for decades. It's risen a little bit since Donald Trump came into office, but it's very partisan. It depends on whether Mm -hmm. you're a Democrat or a Republican. I think our most important task right now is finding a way to build back that trust. And that's going to include some media literacy. So that's getting out there and explaining what we do and how we do it. Secondary to that is, finding the medium that that will reach the broadest audience. I think you can silo yourself and, and reach the segment of the population, but I'm not sure if that's going to do anybody any good. Right now, the broadest audience is on 
broadcast news, but they're in they're in dire straits. Mm-hmm. Um, cable has seen some growth, but who knows what might happen after this election? And if politics aren't as interesting as they have been, or as unpredictable and and yeah, boring, Biden is not good for your business. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know. I think there's a lot going on um, post this election that that. People Only because be I think you train the audience for constant like well, entertainment. But I, really. but I do think that there's there's a lot at stake here. Of between, course. But and there's a lot. There will be a lot to cover with what Congress does, especially on the issue of climate change, which we don't cover enough. Enough. I, I'm I'm excited to get past this election and start focusing more on climate change, which I think is a broad issue that that affects absolutely everybody and mm-hmm. has more bipartisan appeal than you may see in the numbers anyway. But I, so when I think about my, my career, my future, I hold on to where I am right now. I, um, and then I find my husband and I talk about this all the time. We find, we, we talk about whether there is another outlet and digital obviously is, is the next step in that direction, but finding a, a way where we're, a place where digital can still reach the American voter. But wait, I, I, I want I want the question to be more pointed. Play production executive. You, it can't be on Comcast. So we'll just, we'll give you a hall pass there. So you don't have to be, answer an uncomfortable question, but if it's not Comcast and there was going to be a 30 minute program of content of rigorous content for rigorous journalists covering politics and society, what platform would you want that 30-minute program to be on? That is a really difficult question. I want to say it's on a social media mm-hmm. platform because that has the most reach. But I, I also, I mean, I, I, my first thought would go to like having a, a rigorous or a 30-minute um, show that lived on a platform that, that had as much reach as mm-hmm. Twitter does. Mm-hmm. But the problem with Twitter is that it's... People don't have the twitchy. attention yeah. span it's twitchy. for anything more than 285 characters, yeah. whatever the number is now. Yeah. Um, but it's twitchy, exactly. So I I think... I've stumped Katie Torch, Tara. I mean, do, do I get a prize here? Question. All right, I'm going to ask you the last question. Do I get a coffee with, we'll get a coffee with Brian Williams? No. What's the prize here? No. No. Oh, well, I don't know. Does oh, Brian drink coffee? I'm not even Dad, sure. Love Brian Dad, Williams. Dad. So, well, <laughs> listen. Last thing you're going to do for the, this week, what are you prepping to do? How are you thinking about the election day? What are you doing? So are you, are you I, on election day, are you doing? I am going to try and sleep between 6 and 10 p.m., which seems odd because that's the hmm. prime hour. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am anchoring with Eamon the overnight shift from 2 a.m. to 6 a.m. Oh, man. I'll be watching. <laughs> Which, which actually, which, which sounds really brutal, but because this is such an unpredictable election, it could be some really, it could be a really interesting time. So I'm going to try and figure out how to fall asleep. Are you doing it from the basement? Or are you all getting together? Is NBC That's a good doing? question. I've asked that question. And I have not gotten a clear answer. Y'all should be As together. You can hear, I have a sinus infection. Yeah. So I think it'll probably depend on whether I am all better. By the way, as a pilot, right. that's what's okay, called so- the Sacramento to Lubbock route. That two a.m. to six a.m. You got that's not a great. Rig- you you are so New York to London. Who do, who do we speak to? Who do we speak to? No. I, I I don't know. I'm sure you know who you. No, they call. need no, to have no, Brian be, on for the main shift. part so he could make all those little like you know like cows well, in that might the be barn, the interesting hours. In Nebraska. Well, like, this is what's interesting about becoming an anchor. So when you're a reporter, you know you can be on top of your game and you yeah. can be like the the one out front and right. and be the star in your position. But once you get to the what is the promotion anchor. which is the anchor gig you're back yeah. down to the bottom of the of the flagpole again yeah bottom yeah. of the totem pole got to work your way back up there so you welcome go to 2 a.m <laughs> we can't wait we will be watching you at 2 a.m because you know we are there's still everyone's still gonna, gonna be gonna watching be all night it's, it's gonna it's gonna you're be prime gonna time be somewhere yeah exactly hey scott if you come up with a good place for me to go take my 30 minute show you tell me we just know not careful quibby, what you we'll get back for. to you on the rest careful of it. what you ask for <laughs> uh-oh <laughs> Uh oh! A podcast with Scott. Don't please don't do it. I I urge you not to. Anyway, Katie, thank you so much. We really appreciate it, and good luck with your show today. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Okay, Scott. One more quick break. We'll be back for wins and fails. Okay, Scott. Isn't Katie Tour the best? 
Yeah, I think she's wonderful. I have, you know, I have fake friends because I'm sort of living in my own world. And I've decided my new fake friends are Katie and Brian Williams. I, I like him. I like that whole MSNBC. Yeah, I like them. They're yeah. my, I like to watch them. Me I always too. am like, I've got to watch my, my Katie. They both seem like nice people. Yeah, I would like one of the things she was talking about is I would like a return to less punditry and more reporters on just like I prefer reporters, you know, with points of view who actually know what they're talking about. And I think cable, if they're going to try to revive themselves, they just do reporting like and tell stories. I think that would there's be a, cool. There's a very Instead unhealthy tension punditry. in our society where it used to be, you know, there's a tension between fact and novelty. And you remember the old 70s, Jerry Dumphy, where you'd have 27 minutes of fact and then three minutes mm-hmm. of novelty or opinion. It's totally mm-hmm. flipped. Yep. And MSNBC, exactly. quite frankly, is guilty of it, is, is yeah, as guilty of it because it. there's more money in it. But at some point, go back. at some point, we'll, there'll be a market to go back. I actually think that's why a lot of these traditional media outlets, the Washington Post and New York Times are thriving. New York Times, by the way, is thriving. Reporting. It's because reporting. they're about just the facts. Stories. Yeah, the truth. Whether it's a kooky story or yeah. it just it's just good storytelling. Good storytelling. Um, okay. Scott, wins and fails. Uh, What's your wins and sure. fails? Sure. So my win is uh, the largest IPO in history in terms of proceeds and financial, yes, thirty-four is. billion dollars. I think the average per- Jack Ma. That's right. It's basically the payment uh, division of uh, Alibaba. But if you think about, I mean, this thing is part Square, part Tinder, part Quicken Loan, mm-hmm. part Venmo, part PayPal. That is a good and way to put it. And 700 million people on the thing. And they went public. They raised 30, I think it was $33 billion, just edging out uh, Saudi Aramco to be the biggest IPO mm-hmm. in history. And when mm-hmm. you think about that, the, the average IPO, I think the proceeds are, you know, 100 to $300 million. So this IPO was literally 100 to 300x greater uh, than than typical IPOs. So mm-hmm. they dominate. Imagine, I mean, they dominate. They make Amazon look like a niche player uh, or they Square. Do. They have just taken, yep. you know, you really, they've really consolidated the market and they're about, I think it's like 30 or 34 billion in top line revenues and 10 billion in EBITDA. It's just, this thing is just a juggernaut. Their challenge will be to yep. see if they can expand beyond beyond national borders. Chinese companies, they're kind of their Achilles heel they are not great at, at global branding. But yep. it is, it's just a, it's arguably one of the most, I would say other than Shopify, it's probably the most impressive company of the last 10 years. But because we're such narcissists and we think we've invented innovation, yes. we don't we don't cover these companies. Yeah, Jack Ma is a fascinating oh, entrepreneur. Gosh, I've interviewed him many times. And I've, I've actually went to uh, to China to visit on, on his day, the, the sales day that they have. I forget what it's called. And, the, and he invited me there. Um, just what Alibaba's done is really fascinating. And for people who immediately think the Chinese steal, everything or their intellectual property fees may be absolutely true. The fact of the matter is this company is so innovative and visiting their, I visited all their headquarters and stuff like that. It was really interesting. And I think their Achilles heel is China, like mm-hmm. the Chinese government and the, the linkages that they are, they have to endure. But this guy's a real entrepreneur, like in terms of fascinating ways to pivot. Uh, he really does. This is a really interesting thing. And the question is, can they they can go all over the globe, but can they make a, a dent in the U.S., which Alibaba has not done except for, you know, people use it to, to move goods between China and the U.S. Um, so interesting. And he's, he's also sidled up to Trump. He did try right at the beginning of the administration. Um, so it's an interesting question of how you deal with this company because it is a giant uh, financial tech company and one of the most important ones. Good you one. Have a win? Good win. Uh, win? No, I do not have a win. Uh, well, the win is this early voting. I think I have to say it's really interesting. I someday I wish people would be able to vote on their phones, but I realize I recognize all the the uh, the worries about it and everything else. If they're worried about mail-in voting, and we've been mailing things for hundreds of years or whatever, um, there's going to be an issue with it. But I do, I am heartened by people physically showing up at these things. I mean, to me, long lines are voter suppression because you have to wait in long, long lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but people are distant. So I'm sort of trying to figure out if they're really long lines or it's just there's now six feet between people. Um, but I do think that there's, it, it is lovely to see all those people. Like right now, I guess another, I forget, New York open early voting, whatever, and, and DC opens it tomorrow. The enormous lines that people are waiting in and to, in order to cast their vote physically, I think is really very heartening. Um, no matter how this election turns out, their people care about what's going to happen and they're acting. And I, I do think Americans don't take their vote for granted so much. And I think it's, I, I, it's something I've drilled into my children. Uh, my son voted, um, which he was very excited to do so um, for the first mm-hmm. time. Um, and I just feel like it's your 
your duty to do so. I don't think I've missed an election. I, I mean, but Katie, Katie highlighted something this, we don't want to say out loud. I, I, um, which is, I canvassed for Hillary in 2016, and I bring that up because it makes me – it's total virtue signaling. So I, I, get, I mention it kind of every six months to people. But when I went into I, – I, I was out in a, a middle to lower-income neighborhood just west of where I live um, in Florida. And mm-hmm. I would go into households. Uh, uh, so if I knocked on the door and it was an African-American household, they'd invite me in, super nice, super grateful. And I'd ask them where their polling place was, and they wouldn't know. And I'm like, they're not voting. Mm-hmm. They're not voting. And then I'd get yeah. to a, a white household and they'd slam the door on my face. And right. I thought, he's going to win. Because yeah. pa- take passion. Take passion over mm-hmm. uh, the, the apathy I was registering uh, for Democrats. Yep. And it, what I see, and again, we're scared to say it out loud. What I see with this early voting in those lines is I see passion and anger. And mm-hmm. that passion yeah. and anger right now is is the rocket fuel or what I'm hoping is the rocket fuel for, uh, uh, you know, for a change. Uh, right. But it's, I think it's hard not to interpret this as a good thing, you know, for, for uh, uh, Biden and Harris. I think it is. So how do you feel then about the, um, the, the rallies then? Because that's passion. It's misguided. It feels like misguided. I mean, only, look, they can have the rallies all they want if it wasn't a health crisis, but it really is kind of, that's what makes it disgusting, actually, those rallies, um, is the health crisis part of it. If it wasn't, how do you look at those? Say, pretend there's no COVID and you have these, but it, actually, like, there is COVID and they're still doing these and they attracting large numbers. How do you look at that? Because that's my fail. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, like, why are you doing I think this? his rallies are a mm-hmm. lot of fun. If you're, mm-hmm. they're a chance to, t- to turn out yeah. and hear yeah. this kind of outrageous you know, provocative, charismatic. I mean, they're an event. They really are. Whereas mm-hmm. most politicians are so scared to say anything. It ends up, you know, they kind of, the content just isn't that great at these things. And his are a lot of fun. I believe, and again, it might be confirmation bias, that these are constant mm-hmm. reminders that this is not a responsible administration. These are constant reminders yeah. that this administration prioritizes their own key ratings and awareness over the health of the Commonwealth. Yeah. I think they're I think they may rally his base, but I think moderates look at these things and go, you know, boss, is that really a good What's idea? Yeah, 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 yeah. This it's campaign has been I do think entertaining. really One, one of the things that uh, Livia Nuzzi, who writes for New York Magazine, who's terrific, she just put out another story today. She was noting in one of her very funny, she's done a lot of Instagram posts, she's had to go to these rallies, is that they stream out when he starts talking. So she goes, she's decided it's just entertainment for them. They just want to say, like, looking at the Grand Canyon, look, I went and saw the Grand Canyon, right. and now I check my box. And I actually, the first time I was like, you know, that's exactly what I think is happening here. They're not listening to anything he's saying, because he's almost not talking, he's never talks about policy. He just makes a lot of bad and, and juvenile toilet jokes, essentially, um, and insults. You know, he's like Don Rickles of politics, essentially. And, and, but they leave because they just wanted to say they were there and they enjoy, which is really a fascinating way to look at it. So, uh, what is your fail? Oh, my fail again is just, uh, Robin Hood. Uh, the notion that a, mm-hmm. a consumer platform that is dealing with people's livelihood, uh, potentially theft is, is in, is going on. The consumer who's having their funds stolen finds out before Robinhood tries to alert Robinhood and Robin and, Ro- mm-hmm. and there's no one there. It would be like mm-hmm. calling the police whose job is to protect you in the midst of a home invasion or someone stealing from you like, oh my gosh, they're in my house and they're stealing my money. And you would get uh, a whole, you'd go on, if you called 911 and you were on hold for three weeks and it just, and then their response was so uh, they tried to blame the consumer because of passwords that were obtained outside the network. Your fault. Your fault. So let's be clear, Robinhood product, i.e. its consumers, you could find out today mm-hmm. that your stock has been sold when you didn't sell it and that that money, your money, is being transferred yep. out and the response will be an email saying we'll get back to you in three weeks. What could go wrong? Well done, Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Well done. Anyways, right. that's my fail. Right. I think um, I think my fail is, and it's actually when there's a piece by Rich Lowry in the, um, I think he's writes for the National Review. He's a well-known 
writer. Um, and he calls it the only middle finger. And he talks about that conservatives will ditch any principle they purport to hold if it means sticking it to those The National people. Review guy? That guy? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think he wrote a really interesting, it is true. It's about screw you. And I'm so sorry that that is how people feel that this is anything to to do the middle finger to the man. I think at the heart of Trumpism is that, is the is the sad fuck you to people they don't like. And I get why there's anger. I get why there's like, they've been treated shabbily by a lot of people. You mean um, his supporters? At the same time. Yes. Just yes. so angry at government, so angry at, at, everything. at, at limousine liberals. Right. It's their state in life, that, which was, is not, it's not the fault of limousine liberals that they're where they are. It's not, it, it, the, 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 ab- the inability to, no, it's, <laughs> come on, come on. Like, like at some point, it's, like, this is a group of people that talks about standing on their own two feet. They should stand on their own two feet. Like, it's fine. But I do feel sorry that this is where it goes to, um, is having to, to put a middle finger to everybody. And it would be nice if there was some way to, to, stop that, this dysfunction that it occurs. Maybe there isn't, maybe it is our country. There's the elite and then there's the ones who have to say fuck you to the elite because neither of them is working. And so I would like to, I, I recommend that you read that story because I think he's saying the quiet part out loud, which is, it's yeah, a middle it, finger. It's a different form. I mean, it's maybe an uglier form of what Obama was saying. Ob- Obama was about change. And to a certain extent, mm-hmm. Trump represented the mother of all change. Yes. And these were people who had been, felt like they'd just been lied to over and over and over. And they said, whatever's going on here, we just want radical change. And t- to be fair, Donald Trump represented on a lot of dimensions more change than any politician previously. So we think of it as being something sinister and ugly. The reality is they wanted the same thing that we wanted when we uh, we voted for Obama. We want to change, or they want to change. Yes, but it is sinister and ugly because it's about petty grievances. Well, yeah, and it's about mocking the disabled. That that was yeah, exactly. It's it's petty and cruel and pointless, and not about policy that would change. It would actually change people's lives. So it's easier to say. I was reminding of, and I'll finish up on this. Is my son when I I think I told us that there was a an election at my college when I was in college where. There was a pe- people that lots of, you know, the people who run for student body president are just usually those kind mm-hmm. of people. You know what I mean? Like they were super earnest and irritating and lots of like things that you feel about people that run in college mm-hmm. for student body president. And these two guys ran on the like, fuck you party, essentially. Like we're going to have beer bongs mm-hmm. and we're going to do this and we're not going to run government. And, and everybody voted for them and they won. Like everyone was like, yeah, fuck the man. Like, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and they won overwhelmingly over uh, a lot of really qualified people. Um, and everyone was like, ha ha, we showed them. And then like everything fell apart. People didn't get their, you know, didn't get their, the things that students expect. There was no representation. Groups didn't get funded. Things didn't happen. And I remember like, oh, you won. You sure did win. Mm-hmm. Like you got nothing. Did you ever and run of for course, office? And, that's, that's my way of wanting you to ask me. So, but you go first. Did, did you ever want to run for, did you run for, I didn't, I never ran I for I ran for junior yeah. class president in high school. I ran for, and? uh, uh, Senior class president in high school. I ran for student body president. Yeah. Lost them all. And? Lost them all. And one of the key. Why did you run? Because I think one of the. What is that movie, Election? Tracy? What was their name? Reese Witherspoon and Matthew Broderick. That's a fantastic film. And I tell my kids, my son just ran for seventh grade president and lost. And I said, the key to one of the modest or one of the reasons I feel like I'm modestly successful is that. Mm -hmm. When you run for something and you lose, you realize it's not the end of the world. And then you get back up and you run again and you lose again. That means at some mm-hmm. point, at some point, you're going to win. How much did you lose? By? Oh, a lot. <laughs> oh, really? A lot. Actually, no, I think I, yeah, I, that I, is actually, tough. I don't know. I don't Look, you I... miss every shot you don't take. The key to success is your resilience mm-hmm. over your failure. That's it. That's the ratio. Yeah. Show me anybody oh, who hasn't Scott. had serious disappointment it's and losses. So sweet little you're not young Scott with hair losing the election. And a skateboard. Pony too. Oh That's my right. God! It's it's killing me. You lost the ele- three elections. That's I think a lot. It might have been four. I think I ran for sophomore class president too. Yeah, it was more than that. Oh, just it was always president. And cut never from just the baseball for team and cut from the basketball team. Oh my God! Scott. But I had really bad acne, which helped my security <laughs> and confidence. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be happy to know I had a very happy. Uh, of course high school you did. <laughs> Of course I, you did. I went out with the star football I, yeah. player. I was a really good student. Yeah, I, but there was a glitch I, in the I, matrix. 
I should really be enjoying this, making out with the football player, but, you know. I will be, yes, obviously. I wanted to be a gay, but still, it was he was really nice. I'm sure I, he was I, very I nice. I talked to him, not recently, but I, he's a great guy. He was great. He was great. Uh, I'm just telling no, you. not me. Good high school Not experience. me. I was the yearbook editor. Of course you were. Uh, I was. Uh, of course you were. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. I was in charge of everyone's future face. And the, and the, the one thing. and the one sense to sum up their future. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I'll have some good stories about that. Yeah. Anyway, I, I stopped people from doing I I kept going, 40 years from now, you're not going to want that quote, that particular Led Zeppelin quote right there. This um, person will not to anything. Next. This person. You could tell, right? Exactly. I had that sense even back then. Okay, Scott. What questions do you want people to answer from later I, this week? I want you to stop asking me that. I want I want well, people just to. To, to ask us whatever. Right, I, I okay. like the random Don't stuff. Get mad at me. It's in the I script. I like the random stuff. What do you stuff. want from me? Random. We would like Rando. random stuff, not about stuff. Rando. I would like, would you like online voting on your phone? Okay. Email us at pivot at voxmedia.com to be featured on the show. Scott just wants you to ask about whatever the hell you That's want. Right. Scott, read us out. Today's show was produced by Rebecca Sinanis. Fernanda Finote engineered this episode. Erica Anderson is Pivot's executive producer. Thanks also to Hannah Rosen and Drew Burrows. Make sure you subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or frankly, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you liked our show, please recommend it to a friend. Kara, you know what they did on that flight? What? That flight, the, uh, the terrible flight that ended up crashing in a Pennsylvania field after being hijacked on 9-11. You know when they what? had, they called their loved ones and they yes. called their yes, loved ones did. and they found out that their death was imminent. And the, the, the first thing that people registered or academics looking at it was they called to just tell people they loved them, not to settle scores. But the second thing, they when they found out that they were probably headed towards uh, an imminent, their imminent uh, demise. This is dark, Scott. Okay, they land had, this, land they this. decided, okay, 300 people in the back of the plane, do we just hope things work out? Or do we crash through the door, the cockpit door with a meal cart? And how did they decide one of the most difficult, probably the most mm-hmm. difficult decision in their life? You know how they decided? They voted. <laughs>